Hey, you're listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministry, visit werfcc.com. All right, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 one more time. We're looking at the 10th and last of the 10 Deca pieces, laws, that are so short and so brief, you would think these little bitty tiny words wouldn't mean that much to us, but I don't know about you, but they are smashing into my chest, and I'm faced with the kinds of things I have to face with that I have to talk with you about and admit, I don't have all these that worked out either, And I'm so grateful that the God of the universe knew that they were going to need some guidelines to be able to make life happen and that they were going to get unpacked in such a way. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. But November 16, November 16, 1930 of all years, Miss Henrietta Garrett, a lonely 81-year-old widow, died in her home in Philadelphia and unwillingly started the most fantastic case of inheritance litigation in history. She had failed to leave a will, and no will was found to her $17 million estate in 1930, a mystery still unsolved. She had expertly handled her financial affairs since her husband's death in 1895, and therefore many felt that she must have realized that without a will, her fortune would become involved in legal battles. And although Mrs. Garrett, at the time of her death, had only one known relative, a second cousin, and less than a dozen friends, attempts to prove relationships with her, and a claim to be part of her state was made by more than, get this, 26,000 people. 47 states, 29 foreign countries, represented by more than 3,000 lawyers. No kidding. In their efforts to obtain her estate, there were those that committed perjury, They faked family records. They changed their own names. They altered data in family Bibles. And they concocted absurd stories of legitimacy in her life. And as a result of all of that, 12 were confined, 10 received jail sentences, two committed suicide, and three were murdered. And I wonder if this story has anything to do with our covetous heart. We would say it doesn't. We, we, we begin this final message in this verse called Decca on a text from the 10th commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and here's how it reads. Pretty straightforward information, not that complicated, you would think. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Seems pretty straightforward. And you might, like the rest of the commandments go, I can check that off. I don't do that. But let's find out. Because coveting is invisible. The word covet is repeated several times. Do not covet, do not covet, do not covet. It's invisible. It's a tricky part of our life and our experience. And since it's invisible, we tend not to take it very seriously. In fact, we would put it on the minor scale of life. You're going to hear from me that this, probably this commandment, overrides and overshadows all the others. And I think I've heard just about every sin confessed I could ever hear as a pastor. I've heard people say I've murdered before. 
adultery, lying, taking God's name in vain, bitterness of a thousand kinds of varieties. But no one has ever said one time to me, Brian, I have a covetous spirit. Not one time. And yet I know we all do. We all do. Covening is truly the sin that no one wants to admit. We don't like to talk that way. So why does God give us this commandment? And why does he close off with it? It's really close to home. I think it's like right in the middle of our chest. And it speaks to all of us for sure. Let's find out why it's closer than we'd like to think. Why is coveting, what does it do to you? What does it do to me? I have a few things that I spotted that I think it does to us. First off, I think coveting is a disease of all of life. It's all of our lives. We, we live in the most technologically advanced generation of the world has ever known. We enjoy inventions our grandparents couldn't even imagine. And yet we're miserable. We're unhappy. We're neurotic. We're confused. We're dissatisfied. We're hung up. We're tight and frustrated and extremely materialistic. Our marriages fall apart because of it and our homes break because of it and our children struggle and our lives don't hold together. We have got it all and it's still not enough. We ought to be happy. I ought to be happy. But somehow we're not. Because this disease of life, of covetousness, it makes you greedy for gain. You want so much more than what you probably could actually handle. We seem to be satisfied with, we, we seem to be satisfied and there's always a need for more. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 10 says it this way, right in the middle of a sentence, it says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Greed for gain never works. And in our greed for more, we often lose what we already have. You know, it's that whole moment when you're trying to clutch a bunch of stuff and grab that last thing that you want to grab and you lose all the other things that you're trying to hold on to. Like while you're trying to get, sorry about the microphone thing. Everybody's laughing at that. It's in my face. But we try to hold all the stuff and we drop it along the way and we're still trying to pick it up and gather it. So we want it all. But the word covet here in this text means to desire greatly. And I thought, well, there's a lot of words that means desire greatly, but usually it has a reference to some sort of object that we have that we want to desire. But used in a negative sense, the word actually means this. And this one was critical for me. It's one of those moments where I felt my chest kind of explode. It means a strong desire for something I have no right to have. A strong desire for something I have no right to have. See, if I get this thing, if I get this job, if if I make this much money and have it in the bank, then I'll be happy. And it will never happen. The more we have, the more we want. Humans by nature are greedy and self-centered, always wanting to try to grab more than they can hold. And the attitude poisons life and it creates a sourness of our heart and a bitterness in our soul. We're just dissatisfied. See, this command actually moves from action like all the other ones were action-oriented kind of commands like lie, you did it, murder, you did it, adultery, you did it. But this one's an attitude and you can't see it like an action. You can't measure it like an action. And Paul gives us a prayer in Romans chapter 15, verse five and six that helps us with this attitude piece. He says, may the God who gives encouragement and endurance give you the same attitude 
of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This weekend, if you haven't noticed, the 127 sale's been going on. It's why there's more traffic in the streets and more mayhem and more trucks that look like mine in the parking lot today. Kind of a that's what's going on in my head as I'm driving around trying to take this stuff that I don't want anymore because I've now contributed to the 127 sale. Went over to Ron Snell's house, put my stuff in his yard like other people do, going, I have some incredible treasures that someone out there will want and no one's even taken it. They took the little dinky tiny things. I wanted them to take the big ones. They didn't take the big ones. I'm trying to offer the big ones, but they didn't want them. And that whole little moment that happens, you know, when the whole 127 sale goes on, everybody's bartering for something like for a quarter. And you're like wanting 10 bucks for it. And they want it, they want it for free. And, and, and just watching, observing, everybody touching my stuff. Like I brought my stuff over and I pick my stuff up and look through it. Tell me all about it. You know, where this Bible was made. And do you know how many of them are left? My grandma had one of these. They're telling me all these stories. They put it down, walk away. And I'm like... You're not going to buy it after talking about it all that? You're not even going to take it? I just know as I was watching how much this stuff was stuff that I didn't want anymore. Somewhere along the line, I thought it was important. Maybe somewhere along the line, I said, I have to have one of these. And now it's in the back of my truck and I can't find a home for it. Nobody wants it. And I think this is an attitude. Whenever something's forbidden, that's when it becomes desirable, isn't it? Like when we say don't, that's when we want it. And really, quite frankly, it's the moment that would lead me to what I would say is a perfect moment of communion because, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab that, because what we are told in life is forbidden for us to do, we want, to, we want it even more. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul actually struggles with this. The first six chapters of Romans are talking about freedom in Christ and what he's done for us by, the, by absorbing the law and doing what he did on the cross. But in chapter 7, Paul gets really personal about his own sinfulness. Right before chapter 8 happens. And he says this about his life. As he's describing the Ten Commandments in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, he's actually talking about this commandment. He said... I would not have known what sin was except through the law. In other words, I didn't even know I was doing anything wrong until I read the law about it. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity, afforded the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. From apart from the law, sin is dead. And once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin sprang to life and I died. It means he never realized what he was doing. Suddenly found himself wrestling with this kind of covetous desire. The act of saying don't awakened in him to do. And saying you must not produces a strange thing. Is you want it anyway. And you'll do anything to get it. Coveting is the root of all other sins. It causes us to want to get what's forbidden in our life. It's like the old trick with children when you close, ask them to close their eyes and to think of anything except a pink elephant. And the kids immediately think about a pink elephant. The act of saying don't 
awakens the desire of the forbidden. It's the wet paint sign, do not touch. And we have to touch it now. Or don't watch this movie and you'll do anything you can to watch it. When it's forbidden, it's desirable. And in Romans chapter seven, he's wrestling with this. But then there's a turnkey moment that happens in Romans chapter eight, when the good news of what it is that comes because of Christ Jesus happens. Before we take communion, let's just focus on it. Verse 21, it says this. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war, the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law and sin of work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Then, chapter 8, verse 1. I like to have all of this in one reading. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. He made it right. And as much as Paul was wrestling with the coveted spirit just like we do, where would we be without Christ on the cross? I'd like you to just think about that as you pray quietly at your seat. Lord God, we come before you today and we admit, like Paul, how wrong we truly are. The sin we don't like to admit, we need to admit to you. That quite frankly, there are some things in life that we've been told we're not allowed to have. And it's in that moment that we have to have it. At all costs, we'll do anything to get it. And like some addict with, with some sort of drug, we, we, we find ourselves delving into it. And we curse all the other people who've chosen the drug, but we too have chosen the same drug. We find ourselves somewhat satisfied for the moment, only to find ourselves wanting more. And I just have to say to you, God, I'm so grateful that you came and you put an end to it on the cross for us, that you, that you allowed that to be nailed to a tree, that you gave up your own body and your own blood in a sacrifice so that we might find freedom from those things, but also find life in who you are. We love you and we thank you and praise you now for this moment when we get to reflect on the freedom that we now have in you. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church family, would you take this bread and eat it remembering the body of our Savior as we eat together? And would you again remember the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus as you drink remembering his blood that was shed on your behalf? Thank you, Lord Jesus. You see, this sin of greed, of covetousness, has the power to break all of the other commandments. Covenants may be the greatest among the sins listed here in these verses. Covenants has the power to lead men to break the other commandments. John Huffman Jr. offers helpful analysis when he said this in his book, Liberating Limits. He said, obviously, this is not a human commandment. There's no way it could be. Why not? Because there's no way that human beings 
could police this tendency in themselves. You make, a, you make a person take a day off. You, you can penalize the murderer. You can prostitute the thief. And you can pretty quickly identify the liar. But covetousness goes beneath public conduct. It touches at the motivational level which society cannot patrol. It takes God to probe deeply into our innermost motivations in a way that roots out those attitudes which can produce outward antisocial behavior. Enough said about that first thing of the disease. But here's another thing I see in this text. Rarely do you covet things that are far away from you. Look how closely these things are that we covet. It's the things that we see every day that bother us, right? It's not the stuff I see in Arizona that I want. It's the stuff I see next door. It's the stuff I see around my neighborhood. That's what I want. It's the things that I see all the time. What my neighbor has, not what some stranger has. If you want to spot the covetous parts of your life, start close to home with the things and the people that you see every day. Here's just a few of the things that he spots out in this one law for us. One is property. He says it this way. This verse actually refers to a neighbor's house. It's not wrong for you to like your neighbor's house, to use legal means to get purchased from it. But when I resort to illegal and unethical tactics to obtain his property, then I'm guilty of covetous and theft. But then he also talks about other people. He says it this way. This verse mentions your neighbor's wife. This is where we get tricky. I'm not coveting my neighbor's wife. All right, let's, let's, let's read into this a little bit. Because desiring another man's wife or another man's husband is a sinful. David is our illustration of that. Reported lying and murdering to possess Bathsheba. But let me take this one step a little bit further because I think this is where it's a part of that kind of command where we kind of say, ah, I can check out this isn't me. All right? I wonder if we try to control other people. Like how much time they spend with us. Why they don't talk to us as much as they should talk to us. Yeah, I texted you today and you didn't text me back. I, I phone called you today and you didn't call me back. Am I not important to you? And we start to put these guilt trips on people about what they're supposed to do. We struggle to share friends with other people. You can't talk to them. That's my friend. We struggle when someone doesn't give us the time that we feel we deserve. And we feel like we should spend more time than they do with us. It's, it's almost like we own them. And we covet People, which means we're covering our neighbor's wife, not just our neighbor's wife, but a person whom we have a strong desire to be with right now. But I found this little trick that helps me with it. Maybe it'll help you because I have that problem sometimes. I just want to be around people that I want to be. I want them to be around me. I want them to call me. I want them to spend more time with me. I wonder why they don't like coming over. But here's what I found out, and it helps me in these moments. All people are the Lord's people. I don't own any of them. He owns them all. And I just get a chance to kind of borrow them on loan for a little bit of time. Children, wife, family members, people I love. But all of them belong to him. And that kind of helps me walk that journey. I don't know if that helps you at all. but that, And side note to this whole neighbor, like my wife and my, my neighbor's wife stuff. Like how do I make it relate to me? Stuff is the third thing. The items are servants and animals and anything that belongs to my neighbor. And when you determine to possess at any cost and you're guilty of coveting those things, it's all right to like the same things, to possess the same things, but not to take the property for yourself. Possessing a covetous heart really means you have ceased to trust the Lord and you meet your own, own, own needs. Instead, you're looking to get what belongs to another. And it always comes close to home. It's so true. 
You covet what you can't have. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's car, your neighbor's fame, your neighbor's money. It's the things that you see every day that bothers you. Here's a third piece for us in regards to this text. It develops an ungrateful heart. All of this simply leads to the question, are you grateful for what you have? I mean, really grateful for all that you have? Are you satisfied with life? Here's a startling truth. We have paradise and we're still ungrateful. If things could make us happy, we'd be in paradise every day. We'd think more is better, isn't it? It seems that the more we have, the less satisfied we are. If having more would make you happy, you would never need the 10th commandment because it's written for unhappy people. I mean, listen to the list that Paul gives in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. It says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. He's almost listening to the Ten Commandments. Perhaps you heard the story of the king who fell into a serious depression. Nothing could lift his spirits. Servants tried everything, music, dancing, court gestures, lavish banquets, beautiful flowers. Nothing seemed to help him. Finally, an old and wise man came to the king and he said, here's an unusual piece of advice I have for you. O king, if you could obtain the shirt off the back of a truly happy man, you yourself would be happy. Upon hearing this, the king ordered his men to search the four corners of the earth and to bring him the shirt off the back of a truly happy man. Weeks passed, then months. Finally, the soldiers returned and they said this, O king, After many days and much searching, we found a truly happy man. But your majesty, the man was not wearing a shirt. Hmm. I wonder if we don't find some people in our lives that don't have much, and they don't know that there's anything else to be had. See, there's blame on the coveter at God for his failure to meet their need. Coveting is simply an attempt to improve upon what God has already done. And the covetous person moans and groans all day because they believe they've they've been treated unfairly when all the goodies were passed out. We got nothing but crumbs. The covetous man doubts God's wisdom. He doubts God's goodness. He doubts God's justice. And he doubts God's timing and ultimately God's love. Covening is a terrible sin because it's a huge attack on God himself. And those who covet are saying, God, you haven't taken care of me. But I also see in this text that it's also covetousness. It lacks a lack of faith. It creates a lack of faith in us. See, when you're constantly going after the stuff that you don't have, you're saying that the Lord cannot be trusted to take care of his own children well. And he's promised us in his word that he would give us those things that we need. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. However, when we refuse to be content with that which we already have, we're guilty in the eyes of the Lord. We're saying that he hasn't done enough and we can't trust God to meet our needs. God has not been faithful to us. Matthew chapter six, Jesus gets in on this story when he talks about worry right there on the Sermon on the Mount. I wouldn't start on verse 25 just because of time today, but I want to jump down to verse 31 of chapter six where Jesus says it this way. So, He actually says right before that, oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run against these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day 
has enough trouble of its own. Here's the other part of that for this text for us. It shows itself in a lack of faithfulness because it's really about becoming a person of control. Quite frankly, covetousness is I want to be in charge and I'm tired of not being in charge. And so you become in covetousness a slave to what you want. And when you allow a covetous heart to dominate your life, you become a slave to the things that you have to get. And when this happens, you're guilty of placing the Lord in second place. Do things that possess you instead of possess, do things possess you or do you possess them? When you allow things to supersede God in your life, you're guilty of idolatry. Just let me say this to you. I don't like to be told I'm a person of idolatry. I don't like to be told I'm a hypocrite. But when the shoe fits in my life, I have to admit it. I have to admit it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4 says that each of you should learn to control your own body in the way that is holy and honorable. Because the Lord ends up taking second place whenever we become covetous people. We forget that he's a provider and that we have to rely upon him and that we have to have faith in him to take care of the needs that we have. There's a story told of the zookeepers in the, in the zoo watching two reptiles will sometimes grab different ends of the same piece of food, finding their ways slowly but surely munching down whatever it is they're munching, only to meet nose to nose. There's a standoff. What happens in that moment? But it's been said by zookeepers, I don't see it happen, I suppose you could watch a video on it, that whoever can unlock their jaw the biggest begins to encapsulate the other one and swallow the other one whole as well. This is the covetous urges. We can never be faithful to the Lord as long as we're consumed by the other things in life. And Jesus got to fill our vision. And when he does, then everything else gets back into balance because if Jesus is first, I must be last. And so let's get some help on this. Talked enough about the problem. Let's talk about what we're going to do about it. So here's how I would tell you to make it better in your life. Like, how am I going to get better on this covetous spirit that I know I have, but I can't admit I have? You need to make God bigger. And the only way you can make God bigger is through surrendering of your own stuff and allowing stuff to shrink. So by surrender, you say it's not as important. Someone once said, if you want to make a, a man happy, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. How true. We need to search our hearts today and see what's actually motivating us. Are we always talking about money? Are we always feeling jealous because someone else has something that we think we need? Are we guilty of going after things instead of after the Lord? And if you have a covetous heart, it'll be your downfall unless you make it right with God. So we have come to him and would you allow him to be, be the vision that you need to have so that all of the other stuff will shrink Let's be honest with Jesus. How are we going to go about doing that? Three things and we'll be on our way. First one, do it this way. Guard your heart. Now, I say that a lot up here. Like, that's so, so simple to do. But when it comes to covetous things, I have to examine my heart. If this is something that's invisible and other people can't see it, then that means I'm the only one that can do something about it. And that means pay attention to your heart's desires. Every act was once a thought. Every purchase was once a desire. Every foolish word was once an idea. How carefully you have to guard your heart over the evil and illicit desire that's going to spring itself up. And that means I need to fill my spirit with some practical things that happen to me that I do all the time. I catch myself on it. Here's some things that I think we think about and say. We, we have these idle thoughts where we're not thinking really about anything. Maybe we're comparing cars and clothes and houses. Oh, you 
have a what? You have a what? I didn't have one of those. Um, Impulsive desires to spend more money or cheap comments about other people. This is huge in our world today. We make comments about what someone doesn't have and it makes us elevated. We feel better about ourselves. Desires that suddenly move over into lust or realizing our lust or excusing our greed or laughing at our excess. I'm just so silly. I spend so much money on myself. And just excusing it. Justifying our foolish purchases, lying to ourselves about what we really need, using credit cards carelessly. We just have to observe our own heart. I ran across this contentment prayer by George Herbert that I want to share with you, and it sums up a prayer that I think I'm trying to say to you. This is what he said he prayed every day for a while. Lord Jesus, you have given so much to me. Give me one more thing, a grateful heart. And so I would just add that to your prayer list. Like, give me one more thing today. All the things I've listed, would you give me a grateful heart? And would you pray it for seven days? I just want to be grateful. I just want to give you gratitude for what it is you've done in my heart. And simply pray it every day for maybe a week. Pray it as you drive to work. Pray it as you come home in the evening. Pray it as you start at the end of every day. Try it for seven days and see if God doesn't change your heart. Do you allow yourself to be swept away by the stupid desire And Christ comes first. He's number one. And and when the worries of this world crowd out our relationship with him, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Here's the second thing I would challenge you to do. Give away great. I don't know that that's really a good English sentence. I'd probably get, yeah, thank you. Everybody would mark me up and circle like, that's not, you didn't write that over here. Uh, Give away great. Don't miss this point. How do you overcome a covetous spirit? You give away out of it. And that's right. You start giving things away. Why? Because you can't be a giver and a taker at the same time. Yesterday in the 127 sale, no, Friday in the 127 sale, I had this item. I really wanted money for it. I just wanted it gone, but I really wanted money for it. This lady is admiring it. She was admiring it. I was talking to her. I knew we were going to talk about some sort of bargain price that was going to come. And finally she said, this is for my church. I want to put it up in our youth room. And I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you just take it? And she said, what? Just take it. You can put it up in your church. I want you to take it. She's like all back up, like, what? You're going to give this to me? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to barter. Just take it. I don't, if you feel better, give me a dime, but I'd rather you just take it. So he takes it. All these people are standing around. This dude passed me on the back. He goes, way to go. Nice job. That was really well done. You buying anything while you're here? (laughs) Just give it away. You don't need it anyway. You brought it over there to his yard so you wouldn't bring it home. That was the goal, wasn't it? Just give it away. Find somebody else that can use it. So give away great. Would you like to experience freedom from the cancer of coveting? It's not that difficult. Start giving something away. And then do it again and again and again. So last thing I would say, get your gaze on Jesus. Healing begins when you refocus your life on Jesus Christ. Because nothing human can cure your covetousness. Go ahead, try. You're impossible to get on top of. Your gaze has to be on Jesus. Christ is the only thing that can make a lasting difference. One famous preacher called it an, ex- an exclusive Expulsive, sorry, an expulsive power of a new affection. 
And nothing will expel a covenant spirit except the power of a brand new affection, a true love for Christ Jesus again. We sing it this way in a song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to get dim things on the covetous part of your life? You want the strange things of this world to go dim? Gaze on him. I close by telling you this, that Christ is our focus. It matters where your gaze is fixed. The direction in which you walk, is it walking toward him? Or is it walking your own way? Because walking our own way is toward temporal things. Walking his way is toward a permanent, lasting thing. Hebrews chapter 12 says it this way. Can't say it any better than this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I don't have any better counsel than that on a covetous heart practice Hebrews chapter 12 every day we're going to call you to an invitation here in a moment for those who don't know Christ Jesus as Lord who don't understand what it means to fix their eyes on Jesus have been trying too long to figure out that on their own I'm going to ask you to stand as I pray for you just now Lord I'm asking right now that you would come into the life of each person we come to the end of these ten commandments thinking these laws were written for a bunch of people a long time ago that they really don't have any part in our life they really don't affect us at all oh God and then we come to number 10 we find out that we're a pretty selfish people the things we have to have at all cost something we have no right to we must have somehow our life will be different our world will be different help us to be givers Help us to gaze on you. Help us to understand that our hearts have to be guarded. And Lord God, if there's someone in the room today that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, never confessed you as as Savior and Lord, never said they want to believe in you, they, they want to repent from where they're at, to turn from the ways that they have, to be baptized and have their sins washed away, God, today is that day for them. Pray, God, if there's someone that needs a church home, a church family, and they need others to walk this journey with them, and how would we be without other people in our lives, God? We need each other to encourage each other through this journey. If there's somebody that needs a church home, that today they might come. Lord God, for every one of us who don't choose to make those decisions today, God, I would pray that we would decide today that we are not going to be a covetous people anymore and that we're going to admit when we are that quite frankly, we're just selfish and want things for ourselves. Lord, we thank you for redeeming us, for setting us free and for making us new. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come if you have a decision today, I'll be right here for you.
Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com.